So we're taping. I've got Charlie Ray on the line. Hi, Charlie. Welcome to WLRN. Hey, Thistle. And I've also got Sam Riker on the line. Hi, Sam. Welcome. Hi, Thistle. Glad to be here. So, Charlie and Sam, you are working on a book project together to be released sometime the beginning of next year. The title of this book that you've given it is Changing Minds, and it's about how to resist gender identity doctrine and politics. Can you each introduce yourselves to our WLRM listeners? Just tell us a bit about your backgrounds and how you met and how you decided to work on this book project together. Well, I'll start. I'm a California native, born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm presently returning to school so that I can finish my sociology degree. And um, I met Charlie on Facebook. We actually were debating on opposite sides of an issue, and we just kind of came to a mutual understanding. And, um, you know, that led to a friendship. We became pen pals, and from there we just kind of grew in our activism and decided to join forces and, you know, really start emphasizing transgender politics and some of the issues that no one was discussing. Great. How about you, Charlie? A little bit about yourself, your background. I know you work with the fifth column, and um, probably some of our listeners are familiar with, with that journalistic work that you do. Yep, um, I started working for the Fifth Column about two years ago. They're like kind of an anarchist indie news site. And Sam came on with me to run the Fem Column a few months ago that we've been um, working on getting that slowly and steadily off the ground. There's a lot of um, coverage over there about violence against women and also transgender politics. Luckily, they're anarchists, so it's really easy to kind of like get what we need to say out. And I've been working for the, with them for a while. I also go to school for communication but I have a degree in visual arts as well where I concentrated on political sort of centered art when I uh, went to community college. So that's kind of kind of where I come from. I guess I'm an artist as well. <laughs> Great. Yeah, art is really important to our social change movement. Can you talk about trans activism? What is trans activism? Is there a good kind and a bad kind? Well, I guess we can say there is. As far as I've observed, transgender activism falls into one of two camps. There's one that is purely driven by uh, what we call the gender doctrine. It's very ideological. And um, that's where we see the push to um, pretend that biology is not reality. That's where we see the push to, you know, more or less um, call gay men and lesbians um, genital fetishist for having a sexual preference. And that, to me, would qualify as the bad kind of activism. That is an activism that seeks to trample on other people, and I don't think any decent person can stand for that. On the other end of it, we do have trans activists that are working on things that, you know, should be supported. And by that, I mean they're working on things like protecting transgender youth who've been kicked out of the house for their gender nonconformity. They're working on transitioning transgender people out of prostitution and sex work. Um, those many people don't know this, but um, you know, because of job discrimination, a lot of trans people are forced to become sex workers. So it's not like it's a liberation thing for a lot of trans people. It's more like lack of better options. So that kind of activism, which focuses on protecting them from violence, protecting them from job discrimination and things of that nature, that would be good activism, and that would be the kind of thing that I would, or most radical feminists would get on board with. Yeah, so I would also add to that that there are transgender activists, such as Miranda Yardley and her friend Raya, um, who, Raya Jones, I believe her name is, who talk about this kind of thing, and they talk about protecting women and not taking over women's spaces or language. And so when we talk about using an umbrella term for transgenderism, like we usually use the gender doctrine so that we can refer specifically to the ideology that we kind of want to get away from. And then when we refer to transgender activism, we try to refer to sort of the mainstream movement, which we can just look at the legislation that they're trying to push and the policies that they're trying to push, which do eradicate women's language and women's spaces. 
Yeah. So it is important to make that distinction because I think there is this concern in the general population that trans activism and women's rights should and can be the same thing, you know, that, that women's rights are not interfering with trans rights and trans rights are not interfering with, with women's rights and that everybody deserves non-discrimination policies in employment and in housing. Healthcare is another thing <laughs> entirely in, in this case, I think. As you know, if we wanted to start talking about the medicalization of transgenderism and that and how it promotes that. But yeah, I'm I'm really glad we we talked about that in the very beginning because I think it is important for feminists to take a strong stance and say we do support the human rights of all people no matter what, you know, they identify as or are identified as by any characteristics or traits or assigned characteristics or traits that all of us, everybody has the right to live if we're not stomping on the rights of other people. And I think it just needs to get driven home that the main trans agenda that is changing laws is trampling on the rights of women. But here's a question. Is it trampling on the rights of other protected groups, such as race groups? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that. I can start. Transgender ideology, as it were, um, right now it's focused on gender. So as it stands, women are the ones being affected. But if we're willing to accept a standard in which, you know, a man can identify as a woman and expect to be treated as a member of a protected class no different than a woman, it opens the door for us to, it opens the door for other trans groups to assert their rights on the same, well, I'm going to say rights in quotation marks, on the same premises. For example, um, for the longest time, we were told that transracialism isn't a thing. But um, now we're seeing that it's being accepted as a part of our reality. Um, right now, the Rhode Island School of Design, RISD, I think it's pronounced, um, mm -hmm. they're holding a class on transracialism. So this went from being something that transgender supporters vehemently denied to now being something featured as a matter of academia. And so, you know, I think people need to be aware that if we're pretending that, you know, marginalized groups of people are only being marginalized because of their identity, then that sets the stage for other protected classes to lose their, you know, lose their protections on similar basis. Right now, people don't know that um, trans disability or trans abled are emerging as a political force and are lobbying for protections on pretty much the same premises that transgender people have. And I think that presents a problem, seeing as we don't really do that great a job of protecting people with disabilities. So it becomes a bigger issue when you have, you know, people who look indistinguishable from those who are white, demanding that they be, you know, given access to scholarships or other opportunities that are meant to help level the playing field for those who've been oppressed because of race. You know, it, it becomes a problem when, you know, people who are able-bodied are claiming to identify as disabled and are claiming protections for those that are disabled. It, it really becomes an issue because none of these protected classes are being harmed based on how they identify. They're being harmed because of the characteristics that they possess, which are visible. So when we fail to make these distinctions, then, you know, it just kind of harms everybody, especially people who are already vulnerable. So, Sam, you said that there's a community college somewhere that's now teaching the concept of transracialism. It's a it's a liberal arts school up in um, I believe it's a university um, in Rhode Island. It's pretty well known. Um, Rhode Island School of Design. It's called Transracial Bodies, Transracial Selves. Oh, so anyone can just go ahead and Google that. Yeah. Transracial yeah. bodies. I mean, in terms of the ideology, it seems like that would be a logical next step. And so I was kind of surprised Definitely. when the Rachel Do I can't pronounce her last name. Um, Dolezal. <laughs> Dolezal thing came out, how 
all of the trans activists, the transgender activists were like, oh, that's racist and horrible and that's not real. And yet now we're seeing that it's starting to creep into academia, which is where trans ideology started, Mm -hmm. uh, some argue, with postmodernism in the 1980s. So that's really interesting. I think it's very bizarre because when when initially the parallels were being drawn between transgender ideology and transracialism, the trans community was very quick to disassociate itself from it. So it's very strange to see it being slowly normalized. And I wonder how this is going to shake down in the long run because many of the people who are supporters of transgender ideology are people of color who have also vehemently denied the, that transracialism is a thing or that it could even be equated with transgender ideology. So I think it's going to be, I think it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out in the coming years if there is a push to normalize this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. What are the dangers of trans ideology, in your opinion? Who benefits from trans ideology, and what kinds of benefits do they enjoy? So we talked about this question for a while. It was one of the most interesting questions that um, we thought you were going to pose us. But we think in the short term that men are who directly benefit from this ideology because it takes away the language and the um, legal precedent for women to be able to fight back against male supremacy and male violence. But in the long run, we wanted to say and stress that, like, we don't think that this ideology really benefits anyone, even trans people themselves, such as with the medicalization um, of transgenderism and the effects that that can have on their body. And so while we have immediate benefits for male-bodied people, long-term, we're taking taking away the language that we need to be able to address male rule, male supremacy, and male violence, which are some of the biggest problems in, in the world, regardless of other class implications. And really the one thing that we want to go after and what we have gone after as radical feminists. I would like to add to that. Um, one of the dangers that, in my view, is very, very pressing is the push to um, transition underage children. Right now, from what we've gathered from just information and just research, most of the children who are initially brought into gender clinics on the presumption of, you know, being transgender eventually grow out of it and, and grow up to be either lesbian or gay men. Not all of those children, but many of those children. And if we're pushing transgen- trans- transition on um, people at younger and younger ages, it means that a generation of lesbians, gay men are being conditioned to believe that their gender nonconformity makes them, you know, it makes it means that they need to be medicalized. And I think there are some troubling implications attached to that. And I don't think that's something that's really being talked about. That um, transgender activism, even though it's being attached to the LGB, in many ways it is inherently homophobic. It does, it, it's as homophobic as it is sexist. What does it mean to be trans? And is there any scientific biological basis for it, or is it purely a sociological phenomenon? Go ahead, Charlie. (laughs) So I would say at this point, like, we don't know what it is to be trans, and that that would really depend on who you ask. And so that if we wanted to really talk about the sort of doctrine that we've been talking about, we look at things that Rebecca Riley Cooper has pointed to, like all the legislation that's popping up, the Anki Carta, and how they define it there. And so all we come back with sort of is the subjective idea of like however people choose to feel or identify. So that's, as I guess, as close as we could get to a, to a definition that people have given us, is that it's just a subjective experience. Agreed. And the science on this is dubious at best. Um, Many of the studies have ridiculously small sample sizes, nothing that you could use to really make deductions about the general population. And also, you know, even then, there might be some evidence that there is a biological basis for gender dysphoria, but seeing that gender dysphoria is no longer a criteria for being trans, you know, we're no longer able to make, we're not even able to make that assumption. 
So, I mean, the science on this, it's, you know, there really is no concrete science on this. What are the current criteria for being trans? Being trans means whoever says they're trans. No, 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 I've tried that. I've told people I identify as trans, and they say, no way, Cecil, you're not trans. You'd have to call yourself (laughs) he and shoot up with testosterone for months before we would believe you. So this is one of the things that we really want to stress in our book is that when you're dealing with this ideology, it becomes extremely flexible. Their arguments are malleable, and they're going to be different according to the person that you're talking to. And in the book, we've lumped these into categories of believers, because some people believe that penis is female, and some people believe that it's not, and that transitioning makes someone a female, and some people just believe having dysphoria makes you the opposite sex, and some people believe it's just what you identify as. And so it makes it really hard to argue, and it means that, like, if you do want to argue it, you're going to have to kind of go to that person's perspective on how they understand it, um, because there's different levels of understanding. And so then when we talk about it with the mainstream, the easiest way to be able to deduce it is to take from the legislation that they're they're making, because we we have no other hard definitions. And in that case, we're being told it's completely subjective. It's very weird that someone would say that you're not trans, because we're consistently being told that we're not allowed to question someone's gender identity. So it's very, it, it kind of, it becomes a weird standard when someone can tell you, oh, we can't, you're not allowed to question our gender identity. But then when you make assertions about your own identity, they feel free to tell you what you are and what you're not. It's a consistent double standard, and it does not work to the benefit of women. It never does. Mm-hmm. And that's where the arguments become flexible. Because, like, they can claim themselves that that this is something that happens to them, say, male violence. Like, they say all the time that trans women are subject to male violence. But then when feminists bring it up, all of a sudden we're not allowed to say it. And so that's one of the things that you have to understand when you're dealing with this sort of ideology, which is why we call it an ideology and a doctrine, is because it does it does change. Like, it's, to them, they're saying it doesn't matter that women are scared, but it does that trans women are scared. And so if we can pull out those inconsistencies, we can show that, like, while they're trying to be ideologically pure, they're not. They have a lot of inconsistencies that we can point out because their ideology is very flexible. This conversation calls to mind a gentleman of this by the name Danielle Moscato, who looks who appears almost indistinguishable from any other man you'd ever meet. But if you were to say, no, you're a man, you haven't, you don't appear to be, you know, putting on makeup or shaving your beard, you could be called transphobic for that. So it, it really, it really, it really points back to what Charlie is saying about the flexibility. It, it, whoever says they're trans gets to be trans. And if they, for whatever reason, decide that you don't get to be trans, then you don't. It's, it's a very bizarre standard. And who gets to be trans or doesn't is often dependent upon who you're talking to. They also have standards within their own community that they don't talk about with the general public if you go into their own forums. So they have standards for trans people who pass and trans people who don't. And for trans people who don't, that's what they call them, trans people who don't pass. And then for trans people who do, they call them cis-passing people. They don't call them trans at all. They'll refer to them as cis-passing. Huh. Charlie, how do you get into those groups? Do you have a, a pseudonym that you use to get into a group like that? I find ones that are online, but that they're public. So Reddit is pretty good for this. You can go to Ask Transgender. There's a bunch of transgender subs where they just kind of all talk to each other. They discuss their SRS. There's a lot of really sad regret stories, if you could stomach it. Um, and they just kind of are very open there about how they operate within their own community. And it's a very different face that then these quote, LGBT organizations are putting on for the general public. And it's really weird to see them misgendering themselves. It's a, it's a, it's a very strange thing because, in, in, I mean, we're expected to believe that, um, you know, based on someone's appearance, you're not supposed to assume their pronouns. But if you get the pronoun wrong, then you've committed some horrible act. But they know that they know that their pronouns correspond to their biological sex. And so if you go on these forums, you can clearly see where, you know, they refer to themselves with the he, him pronouns or she, her pronouns, 
And they almost, it's, it's just really a strange phenomenon. It's like they know what they are, but they're expecting the general public to pretend like we can't tell the difference. Yeah. And, and there's so much bias, too, because, uh, you know, once you're labeled a turf, you can use the same language as them, but they, it won't be acceptable, you know, because you've been labeled a turf. I've definitely noticed that. And so it really put, it, it, once the, the targeting of feminist women who speak out and putting us into a corner where there is absolutely no place to say anything or to move, it's a very silencing movement for for women's free speech. Oh, for sure. And, like, that flexibility plays into that a lot, and it, it uses these, like, guilt-tripping mechanisms, and I can even connect it over to something that actually happened when Vancouver Women's Library was told that they were supposed to take down, like, anything that they had that was, like, quoted to be turf or whatever. This was in Canada. Part of the letter that went out to them said that they had to take out anything that was whorephobic, but that if you were not a whore, that you were not allowed to use that word. And so we see this sort of flexibility coming across from the liberal spectrum from the whole pro, pro-sex pro work movement as well. Uh, they can just kind of use language how they want to, and they can tell you how to use language because somehow the language belongs to them. And it's, it's, it's interesting how turf gets tossed around because it's often applied to women who are neither feminist, radical feminist, or even trans-exclusionary. Um, case in point, Shimamanda Ngozi Adichie, she was branded a turf and also hilariously a white feminist for saying that she, she views trans women as trans women, not even saying that they're men or, you know, speaking out against the ideology so much, but for simply saying that she doesn't regard them as female and that cis is not a part of her her vocabulary like that, she was immediately cast down as a turf. And I've also seen women who get called turfs just for disagreeing or questioning. So, I mean, turf is a, is a very generic term that's meant to apply to anyone who doesn't, any woman in particular who doesn't tell them what they want to hear. The millisecond you start asking too many questions, you become too critical, you maybe are working the subject in a way that they can't logically respond, turf is the go-to response. And unfortunately, because that word is becoming synonymous with bigot, a lot of women back down instead of maybe standing their ground and saying, hey, what you're saying doesn't make sense, and questioning it doesn't make me a bigot. Mm-hmm. So it's a rigid ideology that uses flexibility when it's convenient to it to keep criticism at bay and to maintain male supremacy, basically. Is that what you're kind of getting at? Um, more or less, yeah. I mean, this is this is very much about kind of shifting the boundaries shifting the boundaries of what's okay and what's not okay, depending on what suits the argument. And I think maybe, I think Charlie is better at giving these examples because I can't think of off the top of my head, but I want to kind of give you the full, give you the floor talk on that because they shift boundaries all the time on that one. So um, we've seen this in other, so, Okay, maybe take this this part out, but Thistle, I wrote recently about Scientology. Would it be appropriate for me to bring that up because it connects over to this? Of course, yes. Okay, so I guess I'll talk about that. We've seen these kind of tactics come out of other cults happening and other really stringent ideologies happening as well. So one of the other cults that we've seen this coming out of is Scientology, which they call it keeping Scientology working. And so in that sense, they do have an ideology that they're supposed to subscribe to, but when somebody refutes their ideology or somehow comes after them, that they are then allowed to attack that person. It is justified to them to attack that person as going on the defense and using whatever means necessary, including lying. And so this we've also seen as a parallel within the transgender ideology, where it's actually built into the ideology, being able to lie and justifying it on some sort of moral principle, and it's called going stealth. And so they talk about a lot going stealth, and it's accepted within the ideology that you are allowed to lie about your transgender status if it means you can gain certain things from people. And so 
like when you have a principle that you're saying the ultimate goal is to establish this principle, say that trans women should be accepted, then you begin to justify immoral acts to be able to push that principle. Mm-hmm. And so lying about your transgender status is supposedly protects you, then you are allowed to lie as much as you want. And we also see this being used to justify violence against women. We often see it framed as, you know, misgendering is violence. So even in that sense, if you're refusing to use the preferred pronouns, their ideology tells them that that's an act of violence. And because they're interpreting, you know, disagreement as violence, it means that they're then allowed to, quote, unquote, defend themselves with physical harm against women. Mm-hmm. Do you know of any cases of women being harmed physically because they've spoken out against transgender ideology? I've heard of cases where women have been attacked for misgendering. And I've also heard of cases where women like Leah Keith have been threatened when they were going to go to give a presentation and they've had to bring security with them. So that's, I think, the realm of actual threat. There's actually... Um, uh, banks online that you can go find that have documented the attacks on people who have spoken out as well. Mm-hmm. And we also personally know women who've had, you know, who've had their jobs threatened. They will attempt to contact your employer and out you as a so-called turf and attempt to get you fired. We know that there have been women who have received rape threats. Charlie has also received death threats. And so the threat of violence is ever-present. We also know someone who had pictures of her children published in trans forms along with these threats. So, I mean, we don't take this stuff lightly. These are very, you know, honest threats. And seeing that they're promoting an ideology in which harming women is acceptable as so, insofar as they can justify it as self-defense, there's no reason for us to take these threats lightly. Yeah. Can you talk about how you came to speak out so openly about your views and what it is about your experiences that gives you courage and strength to go on? I don't think of myself as courageous, to be honest with you. Um, The fear is very, very real. However, what got me, well, let me begin from the beginning, because there was a brief point in time where I was a supporter of transgender identity politics. It wasn't so much that I believed that males could be females based on how they identified. It was more so that I came from a liberal feminist background, which pretty much encourages us to believe that choice is the only thing that matters and that we're always supposed to be inclusive and accommodating to everyone. So um, from that background, I was, you know, introduced to certain things in transgender identity politics, and because I wasn't exposed to alternative points of view, I just assumed that that was the stance I was supposed to take. But I never shook the idea that men were not the same thing as women. And it was after being called a bigot so many times that I had to maybe wonder if maybe believing this did make me a bigot. And um, it was only after I connected with radical feminists and um, read the letter that Elizabeth Hungerford and Kathy Brennan published that I began to see that it made a lot of sense and that I could no longer support transgender identity politics. Just by becoming more educated, I learned that I could no longer support this. And since I've been maybe dropping hints in the beginning, since I was dropping hints in the beginning and just kind of, you know, developing my stance, I would hear, you know, women, women would come to me in private messages saying, you know what, I'm so glad you said that because I could never say it out loud. And that is what emboldens me to continue saying it. I think women need to know that there are a lot of us out there who are questioning this and challenging this and that they're not alone in, you know, maybe thinking that certain things they're being asked to believe are just wrong. Great. How did you get access to Kathy Brennan's and Elizabeth Hungerford's letter to the UN. That's that's what you're referring to, right? The letter on the status of women from 2011. Yeah, if you Google it, it's available online. How did you know to Google it? Like, are there any college courses that are teaching women to ask questions and find out information about trans 
ideology? Not that I know of. I think right now um, colleges pre- colleges are pretty much encouraging people to go along with it. Um, what got me interested in um, the letter was that I kept hearing their names being dropped in certain supportive communities for transgender people, and I kept hearing outrageous claims like these women want trans people to be, you know, sent to the gulag, and they want trans people sent to death camps. And I finally just decided to go search and figure out who these women are. And it was only after I began looking at what they had to say that I realized they were being completely misrepresented. So that was ultimately what got me looking at the other side of the argument. It was I got to a point where I was no longer just unquestioningly accepting it. I began looking at the other side to see what it is that they were actually saying. And it was only then that I realized that so much of the information that I was hearing about Brennan and Hungerford were just total lies. Yeah, and the irony is that our side is often called Alanis. You know, like when we criticize, and I'd like you to talk about this, the laws, the changing laws and policies out there. I've often heard transgender ideology supporters say, oh, that's just your silly little fears. There's nothing to fear. It's like we're supporting trans rights, which is not a negation of women's rights. What do you say? What do you say to people when they accuse you of fear-mongering in terms of having criticisms about the laws that are in the pike right now? I guess I'll take this one. Let me see if I can find, because I think I wrote down, I think I wrote down some, um, notes on it. So I I am also uh, confronted with this a lot, that I'm told that I'm fear-mongering or that I'm trying to create some sort of atmosphere that, I guess, propagating an atmosphere that already exists against trans people. But again, it's, it's like really easy reversals. Like you're saying, you know, we're told all the time about these like really alarmist things coming from the transgender community that even if they wanted to say help transgender youth with the suicide rates that are brought up so often, it's really not usually brought up in conversation as an honest conversation about transgender people and what mental health issues they might face, such as depression, um, which they have really high rates of. It's used and thrown at us as if we don't care about that when we're coming from a position of you know, deeply caring about things like that. That's where radical feminists are really coming from. And, like, the connection of living in a gendered system to things like depression, um, especially for gender nonconforming youth who generally grow out of dysphoria and end up being um, lesbian or gay or bisexual individuals. And so one of the things that we do want to try to stress in our book is that while people are reaching for answers to the gender problem that they seem to be confronted with, that this is actually the the answer, is radical feminism. And to look at pulling apart why they're using alarmist, uh, you know, dialogue when they're they're talking to us and using quick arguments rather than sending really detailed information to question these double standards that are flowing really, really heavily out out of the community that we might be able to combat with a little bit of cognitive dissonance. Great. What do you say, speaking of just brainstorming some counter-arguments, because there are just, they say so many different things that can make you feel like you've been backed up into a corner, because of course I support civil rights, you know. Of course I'm not, I'm I'm analyzing and thinking about this, Mm -hmm. but uh, what do you say to people when they accuse feminists of not supporting the civil rights of trans people and and that and and just the framing of transgenderism as a civil rights movement well it's not a civil rights movement it's an anti-civil rights movement there has never been a point in if we look at the 60s the civil rights movement wasn't seeking to trample over anyone's rights it was seeking to you know fight for rights for people that were being you know oppressed racially. So this the movement that we see now isn't just about, you know, protecting transgender people from harm. It's very much about trampling over women's rights for, you know, for the sake of men mostly. For the most part, we don't really hear about transgender females or transgender men being emphasized here. This is really a movement about trans-identified males. 
So this is not a civil rights movement, and I believe the parallels are designed to kind of make people think of the fights that were going on in the 60s, and it's absolutely not the same thing. This is not a, a anti-segregation movement of any sort, and I think that, you know, it misrepresents what's going on when we treat this as a civil rights movement. And one of the things that I do talk about a lot, we're going to talk about a lot in the book, are these basic logical arguments. And so if you want to extrapolate one of the arguments they use um, is they do say that this parallels the civil rights movement because of segregation. So a really easy argument to that is that transgender activists are not seeking to desegregate bathrooms. They're seeking to put trans people into women's bathrooms. And so they want to keep that se segregation. They just want to readdress the boundaries. And so that's where, really where the argument comes in is about what, what those boundaries are, not whether or not we're going to desegregate. And that's really important because they accuse us of, you know, being somehow racist because we want segregation, but they are also fighting for segregation. And I think it's interesting also to note that, you know, if they were fighting for more gender-neutral facilities to make themselves feel safer, you know, that would be something that we could support. But very often they reject gender-neutral facilities because what they want is to maintain these boundaries. And it's almost always the facilities for women that are being infringed upon. So, I mean, I think to parallel that to the anti-racist movement of the 60s is just intellectually dishonest and downright false. Yeah. What's the number one demographic that transgenders in 2017, is it white, straight, male? Do we have those stats? I do not have the numbers on hand. I do know that there, when this movement began, it was very largely, and I would say the majority was white males, upwards of 70 or 80%. But we have seen, I read about a very huge rise in females transitioning. And so, you know, there really haven't been studies done as to why that demographic is changing. And it's also very difficult to pin down the demographic because it's based, it's based on identity. And identity is a very fluid thing. So it, it's very difficult to say, oh, well, this many people in this country are transgender from this ethnic group, when according to the tenets of their ideology, they can switch back anytime they want. Yet when, I, when people do detransition, they often are accused of never having truly been transgender in the first place. That happens to me a lot. Um, I bring up that when I grew up, I thought that I was born in the wrong body and that I wanted to be a boy. And I'm often told that that wasn't real, that it wasn't a real experience, or that, yeah, that it uh, doesn't count somehow. They usually don't elaborate very well. But, um, it's, again, a part of the flexibility of the ideology, because if we're told over and over again that all that really matters is some subjective, ex subjective experience, then, you know, every single subjective experience should matter but then it doesn't. And so another inconsistency that we can point out pretty quickly. Yeah, let's talk activism for a second. Both, uh, do both of you consider yourselves to be political activists? I do not. I consider myself to be a journalist at this point. When I was younger, I went out into the streets a lot more, and I also had, to, I had my hand at organizing. I helped with a couple of campaigns, local campaigns that I was the art director for, so I handled the a lot of the PR and the photography and the messaging and the posters that went out. And I did that kind of stuff, and I'm, I'm just not exactly a people person. So I, that's why I switched over to studying communication and writing online. I would consider myself to be more of a social and societal critic. Um, most of my involvement has been fairly recent, maybe in the last year or so. And it's also focused on writing and um, building an audience so that people are more likely to question these things. However, we, you know, we do want to see, you know, more activism surrounding this issue in the future. It's just not where we are right now. And it, it kind of sounds like from what I read on Charlie's site about the book that you want the book to be almost like a how-to guide to Let's see, it says, we also have ongoing projects constantly in the works on social media as well as guerrilla activism. We <laughs> intend to push this conversation to debate because it's being deplatformed de and to continue to create meaningful and practical content, practical content for feminists. A how-to 
resist the gender doctrine guide. Because, you know, this is coming up for a lot of women and people in general all over the place in our lives. And I, and, and so when I read that description of, of the book, it, it made me feel like it was activist-oriented and helping people to have conversations, which you could say is a form of activism. At this point, if we were able to normalize a dialogue on this, just make it so that it's okay for people to say, hey, this doesn't make sense, or can you, you know, can you know, elaborate on this because I don't see how this is true, I would be happy with that as a start. I don't know that I would really consider that activism. That's just my personal opinion. But I would be satisfied with that as a start, and that is one of our goals, just to get people, just to open up a dialogue because we're not even able to have that. And then would it be safe to say that another goal of the book is to start a movement, a feminist movement, or spark the feminist movement on? I guess, like, when I really sat down to think about how I was going to set the book up, I really focused it around the ideology itself and how we might be able to argue it in a very simple way, because the arguments that we're seeing are very rhetorical, and they're brought up over and over again, like, what about intersex people, trans women are women, just, like, really quick taglines. And that really came from a project that we created online, which is Ask Radical Feminists, which I don't know if you want to consider that activism or um, some sort of just, like, do-it-yourself activism. But um, Sam and I made a page where people can come and just ask us questions. Um, and we try to just give really quick, succinct answers. And we have a handful of pretty smart radical feminists on board that are willing to give a couple of answers to everyone. And that's really where the format from the book came from. So we're going to have that quick question and answer sort of format so that everyone can get an easy representation of their arguments and the rebuttal to them. Personally, I would love it if radical feminist feminist politics were normalized because what we're seeing in the mainstream is effectively anti-feminist. Aside from rhetoric on the abortion rights debate, a lot of the things that we're seeing as far as, you know, pro-sex work, sex positivity in some respects, um, what constitutes feminism, you know, these things aren't really about women's liberation. It's literally telling us that whatever choice you make is a feminist choice. And that's not really moving us towards the goal of liberation from male supremacy. So I think if we could in some way play a role in getting radical thought normalized in mainstream feminist discussions, I would I would count that as a victory. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to say that I feel, I understand why radical feminists see turf as a slur, but I really feel like transgender activists basically handed us a gem. I think turf could be something that we rally around, especially since the criteria for being a turf, the bar is so low that literally anyone can qualify as that. I would say that they handed us, handed us a gem and a rallying point, but because it's seen as a slur, radical feminists are very reluctant to get behind it. So I think it would be great if you had, you know, turf as a jingle or, you know, the turf shirts I think are also awesome just as far as, you know, (laughs) I I think we should take that. We should appropriate that one and run with it. Thank you for that. I, I, I completely agree. And I'm excited for when the logistics come together for us to carry those shirts. And I hear there might even be hoodies. So, um, well, yeah. I'll be sure to purchase one because I want a turf shirt. <laughs> Nita Johnson is responsible for the, the turf shirts. And if you get the chance, uh, you should listen to the interview with her because she's a longtime black lesbian feminist singer-songwriter musician who played at Mitchfest for several years. She went 28 years. And she is the one who ordered the one and only turf T-shirt in the entire world to wear to the Dyke March in New York City, and then it came a day late or later than she expected, and so she didn't go to the Dyke March, but there's all kinds of – so she took a picture of herself and posted it to social media instead, and it went viral, and then all of a sudden they were being sold at the Michigan Family Reunion, and it was really exciting. (laughs) Um, And by the last day, I saw them all over the place, and women just, yeah, like claiming that term and it just emboldened the shirt wearers. It was, it was really great to see. 
cool. I wanted to, let's see, why, just getting back to the basics, why is it important to address the trans movement? And what do you think our tactics should be? And what are the goals of countering trans ideology? Well, the reason for why addressing transgender politics is so important is because their manipulations are leading to, you know, policies being set. I would say early on, they successfully politicized the deaths of transgender youth, like Leela Alcorn, I think, is the, most, is the one that most recently comes to mind. And people were sold in the belief that the reason Leela Alcorn, well, actually Joshua Alcorn, that's his name, the reason he committed suicide was because, you know, people wouldn't accept him. And I think that led people to believe that, you know, in order to prevent other youth from committing suicide, we just have to unquestioningly accept these politics. And what folks don't realize is that, you know, there are a lot of things going on here, and we need to be very careful in, in assessing what they're actually saying and what their goals are before we go for supporting policies that affect all of us. Especially when these policies that we're seeing are based on subjective experiences. Because when you have um, policies which say a subjective experience is codified into law and that speaking against it is hate speech, then we see in law that disagreement becomes hate speech or that such as the misgendering laws that happen in Canada, if you have someone that is gender fluid, they might have different pronouns every day. And so then if you aren't somehow accessible to that subjective experience, you could be charged with hate speech because you're just unaware of, of how they self-identify. And so there, there becomes a lot of implications when you make a law that doesn't have, you know, de definable characteristics that we can actually start, start to implement it. So we can look at the policies and how the policies affect women and how the policies affect everyone and how the policies affect uh, free speech and being able to disagree, too, because um, if subjective experience is codified into law as, is the same as equivalent as having a different sex or having a different race than someone, then we really can't disagree with them. And as far as what tactics um, should be used, I think you're going to all have to wait until the book comes out because that's where we'll be discussing tactics. So, you know, wait for Changing Minds, and um, we'll be getting into that really heavily. But as far as the goals, the immediate goal here is for people to start questioning this and to start building a dialogue. Because right now, I don't think anyone really feels like they can safely engage with this issue in the public sphere. And so it would be an immediate goal to just get it to a, get us to a point where we can say, hey, I disagree with this, and it doesn't mean that I hate you. If we can get to that point, then I would consider that a victory. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of sad that that's where we're at, but it really is that way. And I don't know of any media other than radical feminist grassroots media and right-wing conservative, sometimes Christian media, that is allowing for a discussion and a dialogue to take place. Well, there was the exception of the Chris Hedges program, and that was such a moment that I feel like there was a breakthrough, you know. But we need Definitely. more of those breakthroughs, and your book is going to help with that. So, yeah, really glad that you two gals got together. I just have a couple more questions. Just because of in, in light of recent events and looking at transgenderism and how, you know, there could be this promotion of transracialism on the horizon coming up. And so in light of what happened in Charlottesville and Antifa, is there a natural alliance, do you feel, between the ideology coming out of the Antifa group and also the transgender activist group? So what I usually tell people when they ask me about this, um, especially because in light of the actions that have happened in Virginia, is that um, at this point, the mainstream left has accepted this transgender doctrine and, and are pushing for it. And so um, the Antifa really we're seeing as a far extension of the left. So generally, we've seen... Antifa groups who accept this ideology as well. 
Um, but it is repeated often that Antifa is decentralized, so they don't have one politic or one organization that they all believe the same thing. And there are Antifa who are from the right, and so they really don't have any liberal ideas um, that enter into their anti-fascism. They're simply just against fascism. But we have seen movements such as the Trans Sykes who came to the San Francisco Pride Parade with um, T-shirts that said punch turfs and that had bats. So um, we really have to sort of um, kind of wade through the nuances of what Antifa is and who represents it at different times um, and where that threat might be coming from in regards to women who are labeled as turfs because they do pose a threat to us. We have been threatened by people who identify with Antifa before. And I've talked about this at length and, um, you know, just with other feminists. And because right now we're seeing neo-Nazi protests in the public, I think some people are jumping on board with Antifa, thinking that it represents, you know, something that we're supposed to be getting on board with. And I don't think folks really understand that, the millisecond we accept a standard in which violence against one group becomes acceptable, that can be used against us, especially insofar that, you know, transgender activists are aligning themselves with Antifa. So, I mean, I would just really like for radical feminists to approach this with some level of caution. Mm-hmm. I don't believe Antifa and the trans community are synonymous, but, um, we need to be aware that the anti-turf elements are there in some groups. Right. And for our listeners who don't know, Antifa refers to anti-fascist, correct? Yes. Right. Which a lot of us would say, yeah, I'm anti-fascist, you know. And so Mm -hmm. I think being able to tease that out can be confusing at times, and I, I'm just really glad that you are teasing out the details and finding the inconsistencies in the ideology, because anybody can say that they're anti-fascist or anti-racist or that they're pro-feminist, but what what is right. their ideology? What are their beliefs? What are their actions coming from their beliefs? What are the policies that they're pushing? And that's what we have to look at when we're examining who groups are. Agree. Um, so I just, have a, I just have a couple of other questions, and we can wrap up. What, and this is, I just, I want to leave our listeners on a note of hope, not in a cheesy way, but in a genuine way, you know, and the vision that you, that you have, because you are, you're visionaries, you're, you're getting a, a bird's eye view and looking at all of these different things in our society, all these different groups and these ideologies and how they're blending together and not blending together, and you're coming up with an analysis. And often what comes from an analysis can be a vision of what we want to see in the world. So what would a post-white supremacist, male supremacist world look like in a realistic way? The funny thing is, we actually started working on a project about a month ago that we've just bounced around between us for a while. Um, It actually has a name already. It's called Emoja, Women Who Rule. And it was supposed to be the idea of a sort of like weekly fan fiction for feminists who wanted to follow um, this sort of fiction story of like how could we build a world that stretches and reaches for that utopia, but also does have to mitigate the circumstances of having come from gender thinking and sexist sort of gender implications. Like, we still lived in the world that we came from, so we'd still have to deal with all of the things that we're dealing with now, but how would we reach for that? And so a lot of things that we talked about was female-only spaces and, like, making that a central part of the society um, because women need to feel safe, and it's really hard to do that without just eliminating the threat um, rather than having to mine the threat all the time and trying to um, figure out where the threat is coming from all the time. So, and I think after having gone to Wolfest, I can deeply appreciate that, having seen the sort of radical feminist culture come to life for a little while. So I'd say that's one of the things. I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, 
Feminism has done a great job of showing us, you know, what's wrong with our infrastructure, what's wrong with our culture, and what's wrong with society. But I think, you know, so many of us are so busy surviving in the now, as Charlie has said to me on multiple occasions, we're so busy trying to survive our current circumstances. A lot of time we don't invest much, in, much energy into looking at what could be. So I think, you know, this this project that we're working on is a good way for us to examine what that would look like and also many of the problems that come with that that, you know, radical feminists often don't acknowledge. Like, you know, in this alternative world, what do we do when women began emulating the very patriarchal behavior that we've been coming out against? What do we do with that? How do we set up systems to combat that? So, I mean, I think it's an interesting exercise, this idea that there could be a a patriarchy and white supremacy-free society. It's a good exercise in, you know, planning for the future. But I think it's something that it's a bit more complicated than just, you know, what kind of world it would be if these things weren't here with us anymore. It's more about, you know, how do we get there and what are the challenges along the way that we encounter in trying to achieve this. Mm hmm And what kind of culture do we co-create where, for example, Michigan, the festival, there there was a women of color space that was intentionally set aside, which was a different space than the larger festival space. There was a drugs and alcohol zone for women who wanted to engage in drugs and alcohol and away from other women who didn't. And so... How how does our post-white male supremacist world look, and what are the policies around it? Do we allow for S&M, which was a big deal at Mishfest, to happen anywhere on the festival grounds, or is there going to be – because when we're moving into that post-white male supremacist world, like you were saying earlier, Charlie, we're going to bring – behaviors and attitudes from the old world with us. And so then how does that new world deal with that transition? You know, because obviously banning it completely is not going to, it's not going to work. And it didn't exactly. work fast. But one of the things I learned from going to Fest five times, I was fortunate enough to go, is that there's a constant dialogue and process that's emphasized at Mishfest. We're always in dialogue. We're always in a conversation. There's no set in stone policy or this is how we do things, mm-hmm. which I think gave women an incredible freedom and fertile ground to plant the seeds of the post-white supremacist, male supremacist culture that that I hope we can create more of in the future. And I think books like yours, are definitely helping that to happen. And so I'm really excited for it to come out. And I think we can just leave it here. My my final question is, is there anything that you would like to say to our WLRN listeners who are largely radical feminists and lesbian feminists? I could give you an update on the progress of the book if you're interested in where we're at and, like, kind of the things that might be included in it. Yes. So we've outlined five or six sections of the book. There, it will teach you about the different types of believers and where they're coming from and what they might think. There's going to be a toolkit included, which will have a gender dictionary. So you can look up all of the different terms that they use and what they mean. And we've also so far listed 35 of their most commonly used arguments according to the types of believers. So we're going to sit down and do, we've already done a bunch of sort of the question and answer for those 35 arguments, um, and we're going to add to it as we think of and add more. We also have a really interesting um, poem by Rachel Iris Child that's going to be right at the front of the book about gender and how it impacts women especially. And then I guess for your question of what I would want to say to the listeners, I was talking to Sam about the question that you asked us of, like, how do we find strength for this? And I cited a quote that was, um, you learn courage by couraging. And so um, one of the things that we really wanted to tell everyone is that we don't think that we're particularly strong, that, like, it is sort of scary to bring this stuff up and, and people have 
excommunicated us and people have gotten really upset and sent really horrible things to us and we really feel that too but um you know we've practiced speaking up and we've practiced using our voices and we've really put together these arguments so that we might be able to do that in a really strong way and so we want to give this to everyone so that they they can hopefully do that too and and you know practice you know speaking up about this great thank you so much charlie Sam, do you have any parting words? I would just like to say that um, I would like to thank everyone for the support that they've extended to us. It's been, um, these are interesting times that we're living in, and we appreciate that there are women who have been standing in solidarity with us and supporting us in getting this project done. I would also just like to say that um, moving forward, I would like to see the radical feminist community doing more to reach out, doing more outreach for women of color, I think we'd be surprised to know how many women of color in this world, well, yeah, how many black women in particular, if I'm just being honest with you, you know, do support radical feminist beliefs and politics, but don't really have the language or the, I guess, the academic background to articulate their stance. And I really hope that we do more to bring our sisters of color into the fold. And also, I just want to say that um, Charlie Ray is her own thunderstorm of brilliance, and um, she has inspired so many women. And I just want to give a shout-out to my partner in crime here because she's truly amazing. Thank you, Sam. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Nice Nice to talk to you. Thank you, Thistle. You're welcome. Thank you so much. You too. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.